Good morning, Chris. We're recording a bit early today. Yeah, it is a little bit early, but it's uh, it's summer yeah. still. So yeah, it's it's, it's weird. I've been up for like an hour, and uh, I was taking my wife to work so I can have the car. And like, I went outside, and it's like already it's already bright. It's it's kind of nice. The having the sun up so late in the day really throws off my sleep patterns. But um, it is nice to be able to wake up and just have sunshine. Yeah, I've been uh, waking up early and uh, going to bed late as well. Uh, waking up early because, you know, it takes me a longer time to get to work these days. And so to to get to work at any reasonable time, I, I need to be up at <clears throat> hours that are not reasonable. Um, but yeah, then, you know, coming home, it's like, okay, I need to sleep, except yeah. it's still light. And I guess I just won't sleep. Yeah, and I, I would, I've tried going to sleep early, um, but I just... I don't know. I, I feel very motivated to lay in bed and watch a movie or something. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'll tell you what really makes sleeping easy is working in the wood shop until nine thirty at night. <laughs> I did that this week. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, that for two reasons. I would imagine that that's probably you know super tiring, but also it's got to feel like really satisfying. You know, that whole kind of saw block of wood. You know, oh, see, feeling. I haven't actually cut any wood. So, so for people who haven't followed this, uh, who followed my life in great detail, I'm, I'm making a coffee table, <clears throat> and um, I did almost all of my sawing very early in the project. Um, because just the way the, the table's constructed, it's a lot of panels that go around the sides and fit in to each other and to four posts in the corners. Um, and so the last, like all of that was all like one eight hour day or maybe, a maybe like a six hour day, just getting all the wood cut to length and then putting in the half lap joints. Um, what's taken most of my time is actually assembling the thing, um, which is, uh, there's very little glue. It's mostly, um, mostly dry joinery, um, and then, um, glue to actually hold, uh, the panels to rails at the top and the bottom, but the panels aren't actually glued to each other. Um, so just assembling it took forever because there was a lot of thinking about, okay, how, how do I want to do this? How am I going to make sure that everything's aligned properly? And then I got all that done. And then I started, um, sanding and staining the thing. And that's taken for absolute ever. I mean, just ages. Um, so it, it is satisfying, but it's like, I haven't done very many satisfying things yet. You know, it's all been just like, it, it's, it's almost, <laughs> you're dashing yeah, my hopes no, here. <laughs> you know, I, I want it to be all like, you know, you're in the shop and you're like, you know, slicing things apart and getting, getting sawdust. Oh, over yourself, oh but, sawdust uh, for sure. Yeah. While I was sanding. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this photo, but I uh, I posted a photo on Twitter because I've been I've been listening to this fantastic uh, podcast called um, Imaginary Worlds, um, and so I I have been listening to it the entire time I've been building this table, pretty much. Uh, so I, I posted a, a tweet thanking the host Eric Malinsky, um, but in this tweet, uh, and I'll put this in the show notes. Um, 
but yeah, my hair is like frosted uh, from the sanding dust. It's it's kind of crazy. I did see that. Yes, <laughs> you're you're definitely doing that kind of you know god of war sort of (laughs) (laughs) big beard with you know kind of ashy uh look to it yeah yeah exactly so anyway yeah i mean woodworking is is great um i do love doing cutting operations that's super fun um i mean it's like kind of dangerous but i've already made my mistakes uh you know the mistakes that you have to make to to learn not to do them again Right. Yeah. You, you, you know, measure twice before you cut. Oh, I was talking about more about cutting your fingers off. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I, do you have some left? I, I have all of my fingers and all my fingertips left. Um, but okay. I took off half of my fingernail, um, on a grinding wheel or a sanding disc. Uh, cause I, I had a piece that I wanted to sand, uh, the top of it. And I wanted to make sure that it was a, a 90 degree. I wasn't, you know, putting any angles into it. And so I had it set down on the, on the fence or on the, uh, on the, on the table that's next to the wheel and I'm grinding it and grinding it and it's getting thinner and thinner. And I'm going, boy, that, that looks like that could slip through the gap between the, between the work surface and the, and the grinding wheel. I wonder if I should do something about that. <laughs> and then two seconds later, <laughs> it gets sucked in there. And of course, my hand goes straight into the wheel. Um, so so I took off uh, half of my fingernail in the blink of an eye. Uh, and, and that was fine. I mean, it, it bled, but it didn't really hurt that much. Um, and then it, it healed up pretty well. Um, and then the other mistake I made was I was cutting on... Um, on a skill saw or a miter saw. And, um, I was cutting something that was too small for the saw. Um, and instead of clamping it down, like I should have, I was holding it with my fingers. Um, and, uh, so the, the way a miter saw works is it's, um, uh, the work stays still and the saw moves and the saw's on an, on an arm. So I pull the arm all the way out towards me because that's the safe way to cut. You cut inward. So I pull it all the way out and then I lower it down to the level of my work and I start plunging it forward to cut through my work. And um, uh, I, I wasn't moving fast enough. Uh, or actually, no, I was, I think I was moving too fast and it bit into the wood. Um, and it grabbed this chunk of wood and threw it across the room. Um, and my fingers very nearly went into the blade and they didn't, thank God. Uh, but that, that scared me so bad. <laughs> I have never made that mistake again. Uh, but yeah, after those two mistakes, I, I'm, pretty much terrified of the tools, which is the right place to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is an appropriate terror. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, it's, um, uh, it's working for me and it makes me uh, stick with software. So. <laughs> when, when was the last time you worked in a woodworking shop? Uh, in middle school. So, uh, okay. All right. Yeah. I, uh, I am not a, person of making things with my hands that turn out well at all. Sure. I do. Re- I require robotic assistance for 
anything to turn out even remotely not dangerous. So okay, that's fair enough. But it, it, as a re- as a result, I'm you know in awe of anybody who does that. <laughs> it's you know I, I it's not that I hard, see people though. who are. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, I, people come to me and, and when I talk to them about physics, I'm like, well, it's it's not that hard. You just do the things and uh, it is and it isn't um, I'm part of it. I, I do think that there is – you have to understand that there are some innate things. I mean, I could probably practice for the next 20 years and, and be great at woodworking, but um, – I, it would be a rough 20 years, <laughs> and uh, there are there are all of these indications that uh, let me know that uh, very, very bad things would happen. It's like me in driving as well, actually. Oh, God, I can't uh, wait to stop where, driving. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I drove for a little while, again, you know, when I was learning to drive, and I realized how scary it is uh, for others and myself uh, when I'm behind a wheel uh, operating a vehicle and trying to, like, you know, maneuver my way down the highway. Uh, and it makes perfect sense in the moment to me, uh, but I'm super absent-minded, and my reaction times are really mm. slow, and so uh, it doesn't work out so well. So mm. Yeah, it sucks. Um, but no, I see it's weird because woodworking in particular is one of those things that you can absolutely learn remotely. Um, I am pretty, I'm pretty good at woodworking. It turns out, <laughs> which is, is really kind of, it's not a shock to me, but it's, it's a very pleasant surprise. Um, like the table that I'm working on yesterday, I had a couple of people like gathered around it, staring at it when I got to my makerspace and I'm like, this is a really good table. Um, nice. and you know, that was like, oh, okay. I didn't, didn't expect that to happen, but you know, it's a nice surprise. Um, but the, I really think that the reason that I'm picking this, picking the hobby up so quickly is because I watch a heck of a lot of woodworking videos on YouTube. So I'm familiar with the thought processes and I've gotten to the point where I can think through my order of operations and, and I know what I need to do to get to the final product. Um, and then it's just learning all the, you know, the quote unquote muscle memory, you know, all the, the physical things that go along with the mental things. Um, and it's interesting because I think that physics is something that you can only learn remotely. Like the theory, like there, there are a couple of things like, you know, how about a ball bounces off of a wall, but you can't, you can't intuitively learn physics in, in most domains that physics covers. Don't you think? Yeah. And I think you make a really good point that we all learn kind of an, a, an intuitive understanding of how physics affects things, but physics to me is that pulling apart of the effects mm-hmm. that we see mm-hmm. into these reasonable pieces that are are usually very different from what we're actually seeing because what we're actually seeing is such a combination of forces and activities that you take it apart in physics and you're like, oh, okay, this particular path is actually very understandable because it, it was affected by this and that and the other thing. And it's a very short list of what we're actually considering the effects. And so I can, you know, draw that on a graph or I can figure it out on a table. I can 
you know, getting back to the start of physics, I can, you know, predict the path of a cannonball, um, <laughs> right. which I, I think has affected physics since then is yeah. that, you know, our, our kind of base unit of any of anything is cannonballs right right <laughs> when you think about it it's like maybe the cannonball is made up of tiny cannonballs <laughs> then maybe the tiny cannonballs are made of little even smaller cannonballs revolving around the other cannonballs that may or you may know, not so. be where you measure them to be yeah yeah <laughs> exactly. maybe, maybe it's a cloud of cannonballs Right. Yeah. Maybe it's just, you know, the idea of cannonballs and uh, one of them, uh, you know, becomes a real cannonball when you uh, when you fire another cannonball at it. You know, it's just at uh, at its base. We end up uh, maybe maybe when you fire two cannonballs at each other, you get 10 cannonballs, a cannon, a, a Volkswagen Beetle. A couple other. Um, so do you, so I've got a particular um, example of how physics is unintuitive, and I, I'd like to hear if you have any more. So it's well, it's sure. the puzzle of okay, you're sitting uh, in a boat on a lake, and you have a rock in the middle of the boat, and you take the rock and you drop it in the lake, and it sinks to the bottom. Does the water level go up or down? Not relative to your boat, relative to the shores. Does the water level go up or down? Does the water level of the lake go up or down when you drop a rock in the bottom? Well, um, generally it should go up. Wait, actually, let's see. So, <laughs> yeah, because you're easy, taking it? it from out of the boat, yeah, exactly. Because you, it. So, if there was a rock and it was a meteor, for instance, it comes from completely outside of your your sphere of uh, of you know whatever things that are going on. Um, then yeah, the, the 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 water in the the lake would rise, but because the water is actually coming out of your boat, then technically the or sorry, not the water, yeah. the rock is coming out of your boat. Technically, the rock was already in the lake because your boat is in the lake and affecting the uh, um, the uh, the rise in water. Um, and that is well. That's is that a measure of volume or is it a measure of mass? Ah, now? he's getting it. Yeah, indeed. And so, yeah, exactly. And and so it, it we we can keep following this on, but uh, <laughs> we're we're gonna put everybody to sleep. But yeah, that's that idea where it's like, okay, well, you know, my intuition is that I'm starting from rock not in lake and going to rock in lake <laughs> right. and then you have to understand it's like well it came from here somewhere yeah. and you know these things influence each other well this this problem in particular is super confusing because it has to do with the most confusing physical phenomenon forget quantum physics i got something even more confusing and it's displacement uh it, it's so hard to understand uh <laughs> that you know displacement works the way it does but uh, so I originally saw this uh, puzzle on physics on the physics girl channel on YouTube. Um, and so basically it comes down to whether the rock is more or less dense than the water it's displacing. Um, and the, the way to think about it is uh, imagine you had a, a little bit of black hole material, like we're going to go to the super, super extreme. So that black hole material is going to weigh your boat down a huge amount, right? And if you take it out of your boat and throw it into the water, all of a sudden your boat is going to float very, very high in the water. Um, so it, it is 
going to stop displacing a huge amount of water and it's going to dis- stop displacing an amount of water that is clearly greater than that teaspoon of black hole material that is now displacing water. So in every case, as long as the rock sinks to the bottom of the lake, the water level goes down. Yes. Yeah. And it's just because it, because you said that it sinks. Yeah. That's all you really yeah. need to know. Which it's really fun to watch other people get this because sometimes they'll get to the point where they're like, oh, it has to do with displacement and oh, it has to do with density. And oh, do I know the density of rock? And they'll start thinking about how heavy rock is, completely forgetting that rocks sink, which means that they're more dense than the water that they're displacing. So it's exactly it's you don't need to involve units at all. You just need to know that it's greater than the uh, the what it's displacing. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so- yeah. And I've, I've found that about a couple of uh, physics concepts, which is that. The the ones that we interact with, or I guess rely on, really the the most frequently, are often the ones that are actually um, the most difficult to understand. And in many cases, we just don't understand them at all mm. yet. Gravity is one. Oof. Where it's like, you know, we can say it's like, hey, there's a thing. It's acting on stuff, so that the stuff falls at this very predictable way. Um, okay, well, what's the thing? Yeah, I, no idea. I mean, literally no idea what, how, how this works, how it, you know, actually relates to anything other than itself. It's just kind of, there's a little dot, 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 and then gravity happens. And, uh, the other one that I always think of is, um, aerodynamics, where we understand the effects of aerodynamics, um, and especially lift. Um, you know, you have kind of airplane wing, it is shaped in a particular way you know, lift happens, we can show this repeatedly in experiment, we can model it with, you know, fluid dynamics, and then just try to describe, you know, how that lift happens. And it turns out that we have a series of similarly incorrect um, reasoning for why this actually happens. That, that don't really hold up once you poke at them. And, uh, and we're still revising one that, you know, seems to work a lot better. But Yeah. So similarly uh, unintuitive is our main topic for today, which is elevator door buttons. Yes. Um, and in particular, uh, so, I mean, you can always go on, uh, uh, what is it? Reddit.com slash R slash mildly infuriating. I think they always have uh, elevator door buttons where the the floors are out of order or half of them go left to right and the other half go top to bottom. Or, you know, floor 32 won't be where you think it is. It's like down at the bottom and everything else is in order. But in particular, I'm thinking of the the door open and close buttons, which have a universal iconography which is like maybe more universal than 90% of human iconography. Like it's internationally consistent okay. and yet it makes no sense. Uh, and it looks wrong and everybody presses the wrong button every single time. So I'm trying to picture door open and close buttons in my head. Yeah. So, uh, so, so it's, yeah, it's ahead. two arrows. It almost looks like a play button arrow, like, a. Uh, an arrow uh, that is, I think it's usually a, a right triangle, uh, but it's got no stem. It's just a, it's just a big triangle. Uh, 
um, with uh, the flat end, like the hypotenuse, or at least the long side, uh, either in towards the middle or in towards the out. And there are two of them that are either pointing towards each other or pointing away from each other. Um, and the long side is vertical. And sometimes they're nice enough to add uh, vertical lines, either inside or outside of the triangles, that look are supposed to look like the edge of two doors. But the problem is that they're so um, uh, so visually overwhelmed by the mass of these triangles um, that people see the long edge of the triangle as representing the edge of the door. And so uh, the open door button is the one with the two triangles pointed away from each other. But if you look at it, and if you're interpreting the long edge of the triangles as being the doors, it looks like a closed door. Okay. Yeah, I can picture that. And if you if you look at the other one, it, it looks like doors whooshing open and leaving like speed lines behind them almost, like a highly stylized whoosh. Um which would be the arrows pointing at each other, showing the direction that the doors are going to travel, but instead looking like doors that are open. And it's highly Yeah, and 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 it's it's that kind of um uh the the uh the old lady and the young lady poster, yeah. the um uh-huh. the the two the is it a vase or faces. Yeah. Um if there are two ways of actually interpreting uh the image um, or th- I was thinking about the blue and the gold dress. Um, <laughs> if there are two ways of interpreting the image, but each one of which, once you see it, you don't interpret it, the image the other yeah. way, then yeah, that that can be an obvious cognitive design problem because you designer and all of your designer friends who are in your same culture and you know you have all, a ton of uh, things in common, you design the thing to to work this way. And uh, you don't realize that there, you know, may be a huge portion of the population that are going to use your thing that are, you know, looking at it in a very opposite way. So, like you said, you can actually derive the exact opposite um, information from what you're looking at. Uh, Karen was actually um, showing me there's this classic uh, Japanese artwork that has a big wave. So oh, as yeah. soon as I say a big wave, yeah. you, you'll picture it. Yeah, it's so, like the the wave at something. Yes, and it it is. Um, I'll describe from my point of view what you see in this image. You see a large wave curling over um, with a boat that has obviously been just capsized by this wave. Uh-huh. You then notice that the wave is curling over. It it has you know lots of little crests and things, and it's curling over those crests. But one of what looks like one of those crests is actually Mount Fuji in the distance, mm-hmm. and Mount Fuji is actually the subject for one of the the main subjects of the. Uh, of the artwork. And then as you scan across, you see that there is a small fishing boat similar to the one that's capsized, uh, full of, of people. Um, that is, you know, exactly where this wave is headed. So it's, it's very dynamic what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, she pointed out that um, in uh, Japanese culture, you read the painting. So I was mm. just reading the painting from left to right. <laughs> In Japanese culture, you read it from right to left. And so what you do is you register there's a fishing boat on, you know, kind of choppy seas um, with this kind of, uh, you know, nice temple in the background and Mount Fuji in the background. 
And then as you're scanning across, you realize that there's this enormous wave coming at them. So now it's this kind of, oh no, you know, I, I see that the wave is, is, is this danger. And then as you continue to scan, you see that it's already taken another fishing boat. So it's a completely different interpretation of the painting simply and and the interesting part of it is that that was the original interpretation of the painting because the original audience who would have seen this would read it exactly that way you know I can only imagine that that was the intent um mm-hmm. the uh the the artist's intent behind the painting as well and so when I come into it, I see the wave and the painting is entirely about the wave and not necessarily about the people or the effects. Um, whereas the, the original was kind of it. And this is an idea that comes up in kind of Japanese uh, popular culture a lot. The sort of, you know, step one, we are Japan. Step two, giant, terrible thing. <laughs> destroys us and so we could go into that you know at another time how fascinating that is but it it kind of at that point it makes a lot more sense in terms of the uh the the artworks background but anyway elevator door buttons you were talking about (laughs) well geez it it's such a gorgeous painting i've actually used uh this particular wave in uh in a piece of art that i'm working on a piece of functional art that I don't really want to talk about, but it'll, I'm hoping around Christmas, it'll be ready to talk about. But anyway, um, nice. Yeah. There, and there's also going to be a link to this beautiful, beautiful painting. Um, but so, so going back to the idea of, um, of ambiguity and design and not realizing that there's ambiguity or realizing that there's ambiguity, but expecting people to interpret it one way or the other. It's this particular type of blindness where once you've been looking at a, at a piece of work or once you've designed a piece of work, which means that it's been in your head for ages, uh, you can no longer interpret it the same way that somebody looking at it afresh will look at it. Um, and sometimes you can solve that by putting it away for a month and then coming back to it. But, um, uh, but it's something that I, I know that I in particular have a very hard time overcoming this blindness. And right now I'm designing a UI and, uh, one of the elements of my UI is I have, uh, two text fields, um, that represent the same value, but in different units, um, and it's actually an angle that's measured from two different origins in two different ways, but uh, it's supposed to represent the same real life angle. It, it's so it's actually the angle, the heading angle of a car at a particular point during a crash. And there are a couple different ways that you can represent that angle, either relative to north or relative to this or that. But anyway, so I have these two these two text fields. Um, and since they're representing the same thing, uh, I want the user to be able to type in either type of unit and have the other one automatically update itself. Um, and the, the thing is that I want to represent that relationship because if you sit down and start typing, it should be fairly clear that things are filling themselves out. But when you first look at it, there are, there's an extra box that you don't know what to do with. Um, and so you might think that you have to 
represent this number twice in two different units. Um, and I, I don't want that confusion to be presented to the user for even a moment when they're first using it. So I, I wanted to include some visual cue that tells you, hey, these two boxes are equivalent. They're going to be in different units, but they're going to talk to each other. And so um, I drew upon the visual language of um, of photo editors, uh, Photoshop in particular, but almost everybody does this exact same thing where you have um, either a selection box or the ability to save a photo with different, uh, to, to resize a photo, I guess. Um, and your image will have um, uh, a, a width and a height uh, boxes. And then between them, there'll be a lock button that you can click to uh, to keep the, the ratio between the two the same. And then if you change one, the other one changes to keep the same ratio. Um, and that visual language is very familiar to almost everybody, right? Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's fairly reasonable. And so in my head, uh, I, I'm used to Adobe where everything in the interface is super, super slimmed down and, and uh, there's very little text and it's all sort of, you're supposed to have already been familiar with it and that way you can recognize everything at a glance and you don't have to have a bunch of superfluous stuff. So because I'm used to Adobe, I thought that just putting a lock, a, a picture of a lock, actually the lock emoji right between the two fields would be all of the communication I need. Um, because it would set one of the fields higher than the rest because it, you know, there's a bunch of fields here. It'll, it'll set one of them higher than the rest, which calls it out to your eye. And then there's a lock. And then it's right above another field, which describes a very similar thing. And I thought, no problem. Everybody's going to get this, this, uh, this visual metaphor I'm making of, the, of adding this lock. And so I, I took a screen. This, this is where the narrator comes in and said, it didn't work that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he was not successful. Um, uh, so I took a screen cap and I shared it with a group of my beta testers. And I said, hey, I'm not going to tell you what this lock means. And they, they know what the words, the labels next to the field, the text fields mean. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what this lock means, but I'm trying to say something very specific. What am I trying to say? And nobody got it. <laughs> and they came up with some really bizarre interpretations. And I'm like, really? That's what you think? So I ended up having to move it off to the side add some arrows pointing at the text fields. And now I think it's, it's pretty clear <laughs> what I'm trying to say there. Um, but I never. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a good illustration there, which is that um, you went to the people who will be using what you're doing and saw how they reacted. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. You know, fresh out of the game. Which is what we talked about in the first episode was like, take it to other people. <laughs> listen yeah, to your users absolutely yeah i i ran into this um prominently when i was working for a company that um dealt with dates and times a lot mm. dates and times were kind of like our bread and butter and uh dates and times picking a date is actually pretty straightforward um uh, pretty straightforward you can either like say you know tell me the year tell me the month tell me the day um, or you can, you know, present a little calendar for for choosing that. It's it 
it's kind of the solved problem. Picking a time is actually something that falls apart completely in the same realm hmm. because there's nothing easier than just typing in the time. Mm. Um, but at the same time, just typing in the time often is more effort than you actually want to 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 use. And somebody can type in any variety of things, you know, with different kind of spacing and, you know, you're indicating that something is PM or if it's 24 hour time or there, there are so many varieties of what somebody can actually type in that it actually gets, you know, relatively difficult to, uh, to, to try to figure out. And we, we struggled with this for years and you can actually see kind of the, um, the end or I guess what what would you call it the the kind of you know detritus of the uh, um, the the war on time that happened. This would be kind of the the mid you know two thousands, um, where you use an an old piece of web software, mm -hmm. and you're like, wow, it's really clunky to try to put in a time here. Uh, that was one of those middle steps because uh, first it was this idea of you'd have like you know little drop downs. And so you'd have a drop-down that tells you the hour and a drop-down that tells you the minute. You probably can guess what the problem with that is right away, <laughs> which is that there are so many minutes in an hour. Mm -hmm. And getting to 10.30 p.m. Um, means that you have to find 10 in a list of 12. You have to find 30 in a list of 60 or 59-ish. Actually, no, 60 <laughs> if you include zero. <laughs> Um, and then you find PM. 50, there are 59-ish minutes in an hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true. Yeah. You know, and and for, then for an AM and PM on top of it. And, and that could get even worse right. if you're using 24-hour time and the user clicks on the hours, doesn't see more than 12 options. So they, they don't yes. look towards the end of the input area and see that there's no AM and PM. So they're trying to do a PM. So they click one and then they choose their minutes and then they run out of space and there's no am or pm so now they have to go back and click 13 yeah absolutely right exactly and there are all those little interactions you, i mean you pointed out one that's that's super obvious which is the i'm not done until all fields are done and so sometimes i have to like scoot back to prior fields mm -hmm. that's a big no-no in form design yeah. once you are done with a, a part of the form you should be able to move on and ignore all prior inputs because those prior inputs might not be on screen mm -hmm. for one thing they're definitely not in your mental model because you've moved on and so if you get to the end of the form and you're thinking are there things i should have gone back to you've just failed because they're going to take extra time in order to verify what they've done. Um, and it's not actually time spent improving anything. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that if you, you know, go to a random web form and, and you need to type in times is, uh, is that it's very situation specific. Now you'll see this. And, um, in general, it's actually a text box. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and no matter how they try to dress it up, it's really just a text box. And you can just type in the time directly. You can type it in in a zillion different formats. It'll understand them all. It ends up being one of the most complicated pieces of kind of, you know, AI-like mm -hmm. ability. Yeah. Um, because if I just type in 10, you need to know what that means. If I type in 10 p.m., you need to know what that means. If I type in, you know, um, 0800, you need to know what that means. 
But then the other thing is that there's this kind of second layer on top of it, which represents the time in a different way that then makes sense from your context. So you're doing a, um, a, uh, um, a, a meeting and the meeting actually knows things like the fact that you're not coming in before 8 a.m. You're not leaving after, you know, 5 p.m. And so when you type 9, you mean a.m. Mm-hmm. And so it knows that. Um, there's actually the the worst uh, time uh, kind of entry box, which is the end time of an event mm-hmm. or a meeting. Because the end time is something that no one ever thinks of as the end time. You think of a one-hour meeting starting at 8 a.m. You don't think it goes from 8 a.m., 8.00 a.m. to 9.00 a.m. Or it is a one-hour meeting from, this is the, the worst one, um, from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., <laughs> <laughs> which, the time is such a nightmare. But it's one of those things where you end up with 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 a.m., which is a very long meeting. <laughs> or you have, you know, 11.30 a.m. And you just, it, it's just all this cognitive load uh, just to put it in. And so if you're doing meetings, generally what you'll find is that you put in 11.30 for one hour. And, and it'll actually represent to you one hour. And as soon as you choose one hour, it'll fill in 12.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. So the the kind of canonical you know the result is still this kind of central number that you can go back and you can still interact with in this way but there's this kind of second layer of an encrusted sort of representation of it so let's talk about elevator door buttons i um went to pick up uh um, my child at uh SeaTac uh, seattle airport uh last week and we noticed something about the elevator uh, buttons while we were there. Um, there's one particular floor that pretty much everybody actually wants. That elevator door is on floor or uh, floor. I think floor is what I mean. Elevator floor is the fourth floor. It is floor number four. Um, it is where you can actually get the sky bridge from parking over to the um, the terminal. It's what you want, guaranteed. Um, unless, of course, you're going to one of the other levels because you're going the other direction. So the other, you know, it's not like you can just like get in the elevator and it's going to take you to floor four and, and that's it. You still need to know what floors three, two, and one are, what, you know, all the way up to whatever, eight or however tall the uh, the parking structure is. So the other floors need to be there. But what they did is floor four has like four different representations of it all in a horizontal line. Mm -hmm. So first of all, they did it vertically, which is good. So, you know, floor eight at the top, you know, floor one at the bottom, you know, one button per floor. There's not, you know, weird interstitial buttons or that kind of thing. Um, And then floor four has next to it, it has, I'm trying to remember exactly what it actually had. I think it has a picture of an airplane. It has uh, terminal, the word terminal next to that. It has the four next to the button as well. And then the button itself was actually a gold or I guess brass button where all of the other buttons were kind of mm-hmm. silver or, you know, you know, regular metal buttons. And so everything about this panel 
basically said, this one, this is the one you care about. You know, all of these other floors are afterthoughts that, you know, if you know that you're looking for floor two, because that's what it said, that's what you remember on your, you know, ticket or whatever, um, you know, you can go search for those. But the default is absolutely, I mean, because the other thing is that the other floors, it's not like they also had similar labels that had like pictures of cars on them or, you know, said parking or that kind of thing. They all just had numbers. And so floor four was literally, it was, or was actually, a wider um, label on both sides of the button. And so it's almost like the labels themselves also pointed to the button that you actually want. That's so good. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, and I, I like people. So as difficult as elevator door buttons are, uh, I really have an amount of respect for the people who just say, F*** it and remove all the buttons I, I think apple did this uh in one of their stores i think it was like their first multi-level store and uh the elevator just stops on every floor and it opens the doors for you know f 10 seconds or whatever and then goes to the next floor and so you know there are only three or four floors so it's like it doesn't add that much time but you're never waiting for um waiting for the elevator. The elevator comes by at a regular interval. You never have to sit and figure out what doors to press uh, or what, what buttons to press. And it just, I, I kind of appreciate that, that simplicity. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting answer to it in a very kind of a very Apple way of doing it. Um, have you seen the continuous elevators? Con no, I don't think I have. Okay. I gotta, I gotta look it up. Oh, a paternoster is what it's called. A, a paternoster, um, which is our father. It's Latin for our father. Um, <laughs> and a paternoster is an elevator that never stops. Um, it has multiple uh, cars. Um, so, so not just one car per shaft. It's multiple cars on a belt. Um, and if you're standing there, basically an elevator car rises up and you can either jump into it or not. And then it keeps going and then another one appears and then it keeps going and then another one appears. Um, and I think there's only like one, maybe two still operating in the world. Uh, and one of them is in Berlin. I don't know if there's a second one. Um, it's in Berlin in uh, in an art gallery. And I think it's really cool. Uh, and I wish that we could have more of them because the things actually are, are relatively safe because they've got, um, they've got sensors at the top and bottom, you know, depending on which way it's going. Uh, they've got sensors to let it know if there's somebody who's going to get trapped. And then it just stops the whole thing and lets them, you know, sort themselves out. Um, and I think it's, I think it's really cool. And it's also like a fun, thing like it's kind of exciting you know it's not just useful yeah, yeah. i remember feeling that way when i was little about escalators Ooh. like getting on the escalator was like this kind of yeah. <laughs> it's like ah i gotta jump on and but it's going really you know it's going really fast and it looks like teeth and yeah it's an adventure yeah oh i wish everything was ex I, I wish our world was exciting enough to have potter nosters everywhere Indeed, indeed. I think so. I mean, that 
totally you know side topic but i remember the first time i uh got on and the the kind of roller coaster where it's suspended from the top Ooh. and you're basically in a car that's hanging down dangling. from the rail oh, so good yeah and and i was just thinking it's like everybody should go to work this way <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you get on and you're like wee for like 20 miles and then you get off and you go to work oh, that'd be so cool uh there's yeah. there's one roller coaster at uh six flags great america and it actually opened uh just before the summer i worked there so uh i i worked there for a summer um and this was like the big ride and the lines were insane. And since I got into the park for free, um, I'd basically go to the park and just ride this one ride and then go home. Um, and it was the Superman ride. And the really cool thing is not only was it hanging, but you were laying down on your stomach. Yes. And that, that was a lot of fun. And it was particularly fun because you could take, uh, uh, well, so rolling G-forces are still tough on the body, but you could do loops and things. And since all of the G-forces were going through your chest, from your chest to your back, instead of through your shoulders to your hips, like most roller coasters, um, you could take such high G-forces that it felt very, very mild. I mean, it really did not feel intense at all. Uh, and it, it was just a, a sheer pleasure to ride. It was really fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, imagine, you know, instead of going over, you know, whatever made-up landscape they had, uh, you were actually zooming through your town. That would be, be really uh, cool. quite a thing. Yeah, the only thing is that it's really hard to take pets and luggage on roller coaster public transit. There is that. There is that, yeah. See, this is, yeah. this is why we need to live in the culture. Because in the culture, you could totally live on an orbital uh, on a – plate in a city that was just one of those weird cities that had roller coasters everywhere. And that, that could absolutely be a thing and it'd be the safest roller coaster. There'd be no lines. Uh, like it'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you'd know that by definition, it was the safest roller coaster, roller coaster possible. Yeah. It, it would not allow um, accidents, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we get, Almost close to that with gondola cars, which are are starting to gain popularity again. Uh, I know that there's one, for instance, in Portland, where it's actually a, a fair way to get from one side of the river. I think it's from the river, or it's from a ridge down to the the you know kind of the river um, uh, front. But um, the the basic idea is that you've got transit that's in a particular area. It's kind of disconnected from transit in another area. But if you get off the transit, you get on the gondola, it carries you over to the other place. You get off, you're on kind of the other transit zone. It makes it actually quite easy to to uh, um, cover the intervening distance. But at the same time, you're on this lovely gondola <laughs> ride where, um, and, and by gondola, I mean the, you know, overhead kind of hanging mm -hmm. car that's fully enclosed. So you get on with a bunch of people and you feel like a tourist for like five minutes mm -hmm. while you're on this thing. And, you know, the city's laid out below you and you get this new perspective that you don't ever get from a bus. Mm -hmm. It, you know, bus perspective tends to be a very kind of gritty, the back end of things sort of perspective. Um, gondola perspectives tends to be, it's like, ah, the city is laid out before me. Okay. Now I get back on the bus. So, well, and, and, uh, 
cable cars, not cable cars, because those can be on the ground too, but, you know, like aerial, aerial cable cars are so great at changing altitude. Um, well, actually, you know, on the ground yes. cable cars are too, which is why um, San Francisco installed them was because they were pretty much the only way to change some of those altitudes without just spending a ton of money. Um, but yeah. like going up, going up a mountain in uh, in a cable car is just the best thing in the world. Um, yes. And and like Potter Nosters, it feels a little bit dangerous, but you know it's not really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just the right amount of adventure. Yeah. I would I would love to have cable cars instead of like long distance cable cars instead of walkways in uh in a big city, like between skyscrapers. Um cuz then you could get like I'm thinking in Chicago, like you could, you know, get from one end of the loop to the other above the traffic, you know, and not even have to step outdoors. That could be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. That that's one of those things that we always see in future city designs that I would love to see in an actual city. I think people would would, you know, quite honestly use it is just, you know, 20 stories up there is a transit system mm. that connects the 20th floor of of all of the buildings that are in the downtown area. Um I think that 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 could get really interesting very quickly. And you know what the only problem with that system is that every single one's going to have the same open door buttons that make no sense. <laughs> exactly. It'll just come right down to that and they'll be like, wait, but I'm pressing the open door button. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, so you had a follow up to a previous show that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. It, so we talked about um, uh, Fermi's paradox and how it was based on the Drake equation and the Drake equation being, you know, this number of terms, all of which were multiplied, each of which was a kind of a probability and that those probabilities were, were kind of, you know, cumulative over the course of the the equation. And what I ran across recently is that apparently the idea of Fermi estimation, which is kind of the generic term for this idea, um, is is used uh, in computing. Um, specifically, uh, I, I saw it in relation to capacity planning. And so, uh, first of all, I'll, I'll talk about you know what I mean by Fermi estimation and and why, as I was reading about this, it's it's actually useful. So it's that same idea where you've got multiple terms. Each term is kind of the probability of a particular thing, or it can be um, some value that you're eventually going to be calculating. And so uh, let's say you wanted to um, uh, estimate, um, what was what were some of the examples? The, um, the, the cost of a particular um, house. And let's say there were factors that go into the, the cost of that house that are hard to estimate. Um, so you're not really very confident about the estimates that you've got. Well, there's this effect that happens where if you take a, a bunch of factors and you can actually multiply them, specifically multiply them. So this factor is going to raise the cost by, you know, 20%. That factor is going to lower the cost by 15%. This other factor is going to raise the cost by, you know, this much. Um, when you're multiplying those factors, their uncertainties cancel each other out because the uncertainties mm -hmm. can generally be 
both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And so you can overestimate or underestimate. And so if you have a set of factors, each of which is either overestimated or underestimated, and you multiply them, the more factors you have, the more likely you are to balance the overestimation with the other mm-hmm. underestimation. Mm-hmm. And that's Fermi estimation, which I loved. I, I loved it as kind of a general sense of this like very specific thing that I've over only ever run into. And I actually do capacity planning as part of my job all the time. I've done it for years where you have to basically say, well, I assume that we're going to get this much data coming in the door. And that's a, that's a total estimate on my case because it could be 10 times that amount of data. It could be one tenth that amount of data, just depending on the day and, you know, the winds and, you know, whatever happens to happen. Um, and I know that, you know, this particular set of, of, uh, of, um, processors, um, can handle X amount of that data, but it's not really X amount of that data. There's actually a fudge factor in that because I can have difficult to process data, which means that it, it takes more than that, you know, number of, of processors to handle it. I can have, you know, easy to process data. And so they just churn through it really quickly. So there's kind of an over under there too. And then I also have, um, a set of, of, basically pipes that are connecting these processors as I'm working through them. And these pipes also have this ability. It's like they can store this much of the data while it's in motion, or they can store less of that data while it's in in motion. And so I need a certain size pipe when I, you know, am, am figuring this out. And the neat thing about the Fermi estimation is that to figure out how big a chunk of my pipeline needs to be, I can actually do a Fermi estimation on everything upstream of it. And because mm. each one is kind of a link in a chain, I can use multiplication mm. in order to, uh, to kind of, you know, even out the various weights, which means that instead of my errors propagating down the pipeline to the point where at the end of the pipeline, it's like, I don't even know what's going to come through. I don't know how long it will have taken. I don't know if it's going to be giant or tiny. I need to just, you know, way over, you know, do over capacity. I can do a Fermi estimation and actually end up with the end of the pipeline being the most accurate mm. of the, the, the capacities that I can estimate. Mm. So I just thought that was yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's really elegant. So yeah, Fermi works for us <laughs> awesome. as well as for aliens. Um, and while we're talking about that episode, it's also worth pointing out that uh, Dr. Frank Drake did an AMA on Reddit, uh, I think two weeks ago. Um, and I have not read a single one of the answers, uh, cause I'm lazy, <laughs> not, not because I'm disinterested, just because I kind of forgot about it and didn't have time to read it while I was at work while they were originally doing it. <laughs> but, um, he's, he's a great guy. So I'm assuming that it's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I will claim uh, ignorance of it. And that's why I haven't read any of those okay. answers yet. Right. So that's fair enough. But I'll have to take a look. Very cool. Alrighty. I think that's another hour. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, again, doing all the work so that I can just kind of swan in and, and talk to you. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye.